I've titled this sermon this morning, Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. And we'll be continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're looking to get through all of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. Just so you know, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. And so I believe whoever divided up this chapter should have included the last or the first verse of chapter 4. Now, before we dive in, just to review, up to this point in the narrative, things have not been looking good for the nation of Israel, to say the least. Uh, The book of Judges, which comes right before Samuel, Ruth is in there too, the book of Judges tells us uh, of the downward spiral of Israel's leaders. They are growing increasingly corrupt. And so as you come to the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, the very last verse tells us exactly what we need to know as we step into 1 Samuel chapter 3. Here's what it says. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this sets up what is really a twofold problem. First of all, there was no man to faithfully lead God's people in God's ways. Eli, the current high priest, is completely incompetent. And so there is a need for a faithful, righteous leader who honors the Lord above all else. And second, there is no man who is faithfully heeding the word of God already given through Moses and Joshua. And so everyone is doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And Hannah is really the only exception to that that we see. But for the most part, because the leaders of Israel have gone astray, so have the people. These two things go together. You can't have a leader of God's word who isn't taking heed to the word of God. Jesus calls this the blind leading the blind, and apart from the grace of God, they will all go down into the pit. But as we'll see, these two problems will find a partial and temporary solution in the person of God's own choosing, this young man, Samuel, through whom the word of God will come and a kingship will be established. This chapter is essentially Samuel's call to the prophetic ministry. Let's look first at the context in verse 1, the context. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The boy Samuel was probably around the age of 12 or 13, perhaps a young teenager, and he's functioning as a kind of priest to Yahweh. It's not yet his official title, uh, but he's serving under the supervision of Eli, who is the high priest at this time. But notice how this chapter begins with the word of God being rare, with no frequent vision. The Lord is not speaking through any man or any prophet, but look at how the chapter ends. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The chapter begins with the word of God rarely being spoken to the word of Samuel, which prophetically is the word of God coming to all Israel. And so the events in between these narrative brackets help us to see the intent of this section of Scripture. Now, why was the word of the Lord rare in those days? Why was God not speaking to Israel? 
Well, this is a consequence of Israel's sin and her refusal to heed the word of God and everyone doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. In other words, this is divine judgment. This is judgment. Listen to Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Israel needed leaders who faithfully declared the word of God to give direction and truth and to know his will. Without the word of God, you will go your own way. You will do what you think is right in your own eyes, and that is not freedom. That is not freedom. It's a sign of God's judgment. Psalm 81, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. When God lets you go your own way, when he releases you from his restraining grace to follow your heart and to have your sin, that's judgment. That is judgment. Pastor Jeremy mentioned this last week. Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, when God gives you over, to the lusts of your heart because you've exchanged the glory of God for idols. That's his wrath being demonstrated over you. Now, it's one thing for God not to speak. And it's another thing for for God to speak, but you not being able to hear what is spoken. Isaiah 6 has a vision. Isaiah has a vision. And he sees the glory of God filling the temple. And this is what he says. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. This form of judgment is similar to the first, but unlike the first one, the word of God is going out, and people hear it, but they don't understand it. And so we can translate this to our day. You hear the gospel, but you don't treasure it. You can't treasure it. You don't really see the glory of this cross. You get the facts, but they're not precious to you. Christ is not worth selling all you have. He's not worth giving up your sin. One of the worst forms of God's judgments in this life is the concealing of his word to you, which is to conceal the glory of Christ. But the good news of chapter three of 1 Samuel is that though the Lord had been refusing to speak to Israel, he was now going to break that silence and his word will go forth. Israel was in a crisis and what they needed is what every man and what every nation needs and that is the very word of the living God. And so we'll see in this chapter that the Lord establishes Samuel as a true prophet and he does so in order to establish a leading voice for Israel who will bring God's word to them. Let's go on to verse two. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord 
where the ark of God was. Eli, the high priest, is very old and is going blind, and he becomes completely blind by chapter 4, verse 15, and so the only man leading Israel is nearly blind, and I think that's very ironic. And we might say, well, if Eli goes blind, that's okay. He can still serve as, as high priest. Well, no, actually. Uh, according to Leviticus 21, a blind man is a man with a defect, and he is to be disqualified from the priesthood. And so certainly a new high priest is in order here. It was the role of the priest to keep the golden lampstand lit from evening till morning. And so you can see how that could be a problem if you can't see the light. And so this description that the lamp is not yet out means the sun has yet to come up. It's probably late into the night or really early in the morning. Now, I don't think Samuel was literally in the Holy of Holies like a sleeping bag next to the ark. Only the high priest could enter the Holy Holies once a year. So perhaps he's lying somewhere near it in the tabernacle somewhere in a place where he could see the lamp to keep it lit since Eli's eyes were growing dim. But this is the setting. This is the setting in which we, we see the call of God come to Samuel. And this brings us to point number two. The call, the call. I know it's not a very exciting outline, but it will be easy to remember. Verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go. Lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, I need to mention something that Christians today are very confused about. Before we dive into this text, and and that is hearing the voice of, of God. Christians will take a text like this and insert themselves into this text thinking it's all about them and believe this kind of thing is normal. Well, it's not normal or to be expected or sought out. There's a popular notion going around contemporary evangelicalism that God really wants to speak with you outside of his all-sufficient Word, and he's trying his best to get through to you, but because you haven't cultivated this skill of tuning into the right frequency, you can't hear the voice of God. Is this familiar to you guys? Have you guys heard of this? This is a kind of cultic mysticism, this idea that you can practice and go to school and learn how to hear God's voice. That is not biblical Christianity. It's pagan mysticism, and it's really a denial of the all-sufficiency of Scripture. It's a faulty hermeneutic that seeks to inject ourselves into every major character in the Bible and say, this must be true of me as well. 
I heard a very popular preacher uh, completely mangle this text and say that we are like Samuel and that we can only hear God's voice when we have our quiet time, when we're, when we're laying down in our own place. Friends, you play with strange fire when you imagine your own thoughts are God's thoughts. When a true prophet spoke for the Lord, they didn't say things like, I, I really just feel like the Lord is saying to me, I'm getting something, I'm getting something. No, the consistent, the consistent proclamation was, the word of the Lord came unto me, and thus saith the Lord. There is no doubt in the prophet's mind that the Lord had spoken to him. I mean, just imagine Abraham about to offer Isaac. Knife is in his hand, his son's right there, and he goes, ah, oh, man, I really hope I heard God right. I really hope. Uh, no, that's, that's ridiculous, right? He heard him loud and clear. Or take Noah, after, say, 50 years of, of building the ark, sitting down with his wife for dinner and saying, honey, I'm pretty sure God spoke to me, like 85% sure he told me to build the boat. Uh, no, he, he heard exactly what the Lord said to the T, all the dimensions he heard the, the Lord speak. Every man in scripture to whom the word of the Lord came, they were confident that they heard God clearly, they knew it was him, and they knew exactly what he said. 1 Samuel chapter three is the only place the only place in scripture where someone hears the voice of God and he's not sure whose voice it was and there's a reason for that. And we'll get there. But the voice Samuel heard was not a voice in his own head. It was an audible voice outside of himself and he could clearly hear exactly what was being said. Listen, if you have to wonder whether or not God spoke to you, he didn't. Just make that clear. I did some research the other day. I wanted to see what Christians are being taught about this, and just so you know, it was not an enjoyable thing for me to research. Let me show you the kinds of things that are being said about hearing God's voice. This is apparently one way to do it. Ask him a question, and then pay attention to your thoughts. Ask him, what do you think about me? How much do you love me? If the first thing that comes into your mind is strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, that was probably the Lord. Yeah, okay. Uh, Phil Johnson says this. There is a monstrous potential for evil that blithely assuming that all your private imaginations are some kind of supernatural promptings that the Holy Spirit gives you as some kind of divine revelation. People who order their lives by whims and feelings because they think their own intuition is some kind of revelatory authority or some kind of prophetic gift are foolish to do that. It's willfully gullible and sinfully superstitious to think that way. It's hostile to the whole biblical concept of discernment. To claim that God told you something when in fact he didn't is a profoundly wicked assumption, presumption, and the fruits of it are always evil. He's right. As hard as that is to hear, he's right. Now, we can pray for clarity. We can pray for wisdom. We can pray for discernment or illumination, that is, to open our eyes to the truth in his word. But that is completely different than claiming that God spoke to you. Now, don't hear me saying that God isn't able to speak. 
He can do whatever he wants, but what God has chosen to do in this age is different than what he has chosen to do in the past. We see that in verse one. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. He doesn't always work the same way in every age. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final speaking of God in these last days. And Jesus has pre-authenticated his apostles to write his final word. In the Gospel of John, people often miss the context here. Jesus is actually speaking to his apostles when he says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is not something you or I can claim. This is for the apostles. John 16, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit will take Jesus' words and give it to the apostle, and they will write. They will be led into all the truth. Jesus is preparing the apostles and is pre-authenticating the apostles. They'll be empowered to write divinely inspired and authoritative truth. The Spirit of God will bring to remembrance to the writers of Scripture all that he said to them and all that he wants to say to them. Jesus is speaking in his word, and it was his final speaking. And once the last apostle died, the canon of Scripture is closed. And a curse is threatened on those who would try to add to God's word in Revelation 22. Why am I saying all this? If God is speaking today, in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture, then whatever he said ought to be as authoritative as anything in the Word of God. If God truly spoke, that is on the level of Scripture. And if he didn't, and you say he did, that is a sin worthy of death in the Old Testament. If you've been taught this kind of theology, if you're, if you're struggling to agree with, with what I'm saying, let us know. And we can search the scriptures together. Now, Samuel responds to this call, and he says, here I am. Literally, behold me. And this is a common way to, to express attentiveness and, and readiness to respond. Each time Samuel hears the call, he springs from his bed and, and runs to his master. He's ready to serve and, and to obey. There's, there's no hint of annoyance or irritation for being called so many times while you're sleeping. And if you're a parent, uh, you, you understand the struggle. But this young man is poised and ready to serve his master. Here I am. Here I am. Now, why didn't Samuel realize what was really happening? Verse 7 tells us, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. We saw this phrase in, in chapter 2, verse 12, regarding Hophni and Phinehas. The author writes, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
So is the author putting Samuel in the same category as Eli's sons? I don't think so. I highly doubt that. Samuel has been consistently ministering to Yahweh and before Yahweh, and he has been growing in favor with the Lord. Scripture presents him to us as a faithful servant in God's house prior to this verse. And so, in what sense did this young Samuel not yet know the Lord? Well, I believe in the sense that he had no prior experience of receiving divine revelation. This call is new to him. This prophetic relationship with God, being able to hear his voice, is not something he had previously known or experienced. The text says the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, why didn't the Lord just make it more obvious that he was calling Samuel? We see in verse 10 that the Lord actually comes and stands, as it were, in Samuel's presence. Why didn't he just do that the first time? That would have cleared up a lot of confusion and it would have allowed Eli to get a good night's sleep. Well, it seems to me that Eli, as the high priest, needed to be aware of this call, this prophetic call. Verse nine says, Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. That is necessary. As the leader of Israel, you need to know this. And just think, what if Samuel just came up to Eli out of the blue and said, uh, You might not believe this, but God spoke to me and is calling me to be a prophet to Israel. Well, as the high priest, it'd be very nice to have the Lord confirm such a call. And as we'll see, the Lord will make it very clear to Eli that he has indeed called Samuel. And so the Lord patiently calls Samuel three times until until Eli can finally grasp what's happening. He's blind, but he's not completely blind. Uh, He finally gets it. And then Eli tells him how to respond. Let's look at verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, and we'll come back to that later, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And just imagine, just imagine being Samuel in this moment, knowing that after you say the words, speak, For your servant hears that whatever comes next is the Lord. What a privilege to be in that position, to hear him speak. How eager would you be, if you were Samuel, to obey whatever comes next? Whatever he says, we will obey. Yes, Lord, speak, and then hear the word. Friends, that is what happens every time you open your Bibles. It is the very word of the living God to you, is it not? Is it not the living word of God? God has spoken to you. It is, it is meant for you. Every word in here is for you to hear and to heed. It's to obey. People are trying very hard to hear God's voice, and to that I say, take up your Bibles and read. And if you want an audible voice, have someone read it out loud to you. Let's say you actually did hear God's voice and he, he told you to do some great thing like eat nothing but kale for the rest of your life. Would you do it? Would you do it? Yes, right? I hope so. I hope you would. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He can tell me to do anything he wants. It's the Lord. I must obey. But why is it so hard for us to obey the littler things, the lesser things? I'm reminded of 2 Kings 5.13, 
He says, had the prophet spoke with you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. Wash and be clean, the, the little thing. If, if, if we heard the voice of God and it said to do some great thing, we would do it. But here, the voice of God tells us things like, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Love one another, forgive one another. All those little, littler things. And yet we struggle to do them. It is the very voice of the living God to you and we must see it that way. Well, Samuel shows us what readiness we ought to have as the word of God comes to us. When we open his word or sit under the preaching of his word, may we say, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. If you come to church and your reaction to the sermon was, good sermon, I agreed with all you said and I like the way you said it, or bad sermon, disagree with some things, this, this, and this, and you didn't move around enough and, and uh, all that, and that's all you get, there is something wrong with your listening. We come to sit under God's word with one intention, speak, O Lord, and let me hear you. Incline my heart to you and your ways and your word. I've come to see you, and in seeing you to be made more like you. We don't come for mere information or to be entertained. We gather to know him and to worship him and to be spurred on to walk in his ways and then to treasure him, ultimately. Let's go on to number three, the challenge. The challenge. And we'll see in a couple minutes why I'm calling it that. The Lord comes to Samuel and Samuel says, speak. And this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And you hear the word tingle and you're like, okay, is that like a good thing? Is that bad? The word tingle doesn't do this justice. Their ears will shudder. They will shake in fear. This is a message of judgment. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. What day is that? Well, we'll see that next week in chapter four. They will all die on the same day. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, listen to this, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is terrifying. This is terrifying news. Do you see what the Lord is saying? The Lord is saying that even if these men were to seek out the, the only means for the forgiveness of their sins through sacrifice and offering, there is no atonement for them. They will not be saved in the end. They will live a little bit longer and then they can fully expect to be cast into hell forever. They will be judged for their sins. No forgiveness, no atonement, no grace, no mercy. Now, I'm tempted to talk about limited atonement here, but I've done enough of that for the past two sermons, so I'll just plant the seed. There you go. Now, the question I have for you is this. Is God right 
to do this? Is God allowed to, to make this call, this decree? Yes. Yes. Whatever God does is right. Period. You can write that down. Whatever he does is right. This is not wrong. This is not unjust. This is perfect justice. God is going to let them just go their own way and they will go freely to their sins and they will never turn back to the Lord. He'll let their sinful nature run its course and they will die in their sins. And many Christians might scoff at this idea that God would, would do this. He'll just let them go or not forgive and it's because we've come to think that we deserve grace. We've come to think that we deserve to be saved. We deserve it. But the opposite is true. And God is choosing to act with strict justice. He is going to give what is rightfully deserved for the wages of sin. And that is death and eternal death. Now, the Lord could have just kept this information to himself. But he wants us to know this. He wants us to know that it is possible for man to get to a place where God will just let him go. Not because his sin is too great for God's grace, but because he continues day after day in unrepentant sin in light of what he knows about Christ. These men willingly and repeatedly spurned and made light of the only means of atonement and trampled it underfoot. Look at the previous chapter. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men spurned the offering of the Lord. This is exactly what Hebrews 10 warns us about. <clears throat> it says this, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but what? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that's Eli's sons, dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? As great as the sins of Eli's sons, their sins don't hold a candle to those sins of those who hear the gospel of the glory of Christ and then cast it aside, trample it underfoot, reject it, and refuse to come to Christ. If you're here and you've heard the gospel over and over and over again and yet you go on sinning willfully, it may well be that there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. But the expectation of judgment, that's what this is saying. That's what 1 Samuel chapter 3 is saying. It's what Hebrews 10 is saying. And if you're wondering, is this me? Don't say to yourself, well, uh, looks like I'm going to hell. I might as well just enjoy my sin while I live. No, friend, don't do that. You ought to say with all your soul, is there yet hope for me? Is the door of mercy still open? Can I come to Christ today and, and trust that his blood will avail for me? And if you're asking that question, the answer is yes. If that's you, if you're asking that question, that's grace working in your heart to come to Christ. You can come to this high priest and find full atonement. 
if that's you today. And listen, the glory of this high priest is that you don't need to go to Shiloh or Jerusalem. You don't, you don't, you don't need to go on some great journey or epic you know, uh, journey throughout the cosmos. He has condescended from heaven to earth, the lowest condescension you can imagine, an infinite measure to come to you, to come to you. And you don't need to bring any sacrifice to this table, to this, to this Lord. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice for the sins of man. And you don't need to deal with wicked priests like Hophni and Phinehas. His uh, one sacrifice, his son, the, the Holy One of God, this is the Lamb of God who takes, us, takes away the sin of the world. He is holy, unblemished, undefiled, and separated from sinners. He has offered one sacrifice. And so you don't need to bring the same sacrifice year after year. His one sacrifice will avail for you forever if you look to him in faith. The glory of this high priest is far greater than the glory, if there ever was any, of the old covenant and the old priesthood. All those priests have died, but this one lives forever. And it says in Hebrews 7, 25, therefore Christ is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. One look, my friends, to this slain lamb of God and you will have full forgiveness of all your sins, full atonement, eternal life will be yours. This one sacrifice outweighs them all. All those, uh, the bulls and goats and lambs which can never fully take away sins, this is one and done. This is one and done, all sins for all time, and it's just one look away. It's just one look away. The Lord has made it so simple, so simple to be saved, and there are no sins which are beyond the reach of this cross. The blood of Christ can wash away any and all sins. And the point of this judgment in chapter three of 1 Samuel and Hebrews 10 is that if you despise and reject the cross of Christ, you despise and reject the only means of your salvation. And if you do that, the word of God says to you, expect judgment, expect judgment. That's what you can expect. What do we learn from Eli's sin? This judgment against Eli tells us that we can end up in grave sin when we choose to tolerate evil over honoring the Lord. Eli tolerated and even at times partook of the sins of his sons when he should have restrained them. Eli should have put his sons to death. That's what the law required for blaspheming God in the Old Testament. Don't hear me saying that you should do that now. That's the Old Testament. That's what the law required. But listen, love, even a fatherly love or, or niceness that ignores God's law and despises his holiness is not loving. It's wicked. It's not honoring to the Lord when you tolerate the sin of others. Eli knowingly honored his sons over the Lord, and this is the punishment and so this is what the Lord spoke to Samuel. This is this word of irreversible judgment and Samuel is charged to proclaim it to his adopted father. So let's see what happens. Samuel lay until morning. It didn't say he slept and I don't think he did. 
Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Yeah, I would be too. Herein lies the challenge. The challenge that everyone who proclaims the word of God faces. And the question is this, will he be faithful to proclaim God's word of judgment? Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, and understandably so. He's not leaping for joy at this decree from the Lord. He knows he must speak, but he is burdened because of his compassion toward his adopted father. When I come up here and the word of God is before me and when I see I have to preach again on judgment and wrath, I'm not like, yay, I just love preaching on judgment, it's my favorite. No, we do it. We come up here and preach judgment because we are commanded to proclaim the whole counsel of God and because we love you and we want your eternal good and so we speak, come what may, come what may. Let's see what Samuel does. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Samuel spoke as God commanded He didn't twist the message or make it so vague it meant nothing. He told him everything and hid nothing. And uh, Eli did lighten the load a little bit. He he kindly placed a a solemn curse on Samuel if he refused to tell the whole message. Eli wanted Samuel to know that it was his job, it was his responsibility to declare the whole message of God, even if it is bad news. Now let's see how Eli responds to what is arguably the worst news you could ever hear. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This is an interesting response from Eli, to say the least. For one, Eli does confirm that Yahweh has indeed spoken to this young man. He says, it is the Lord. And so the high priest now knows that Samuel has been called to proclaim God's word to Israel. This message Eli heard from Samuel echoes with what he heard in chapter two. But it seems he is almost stoically resigned to the sovereign will of God. Now, he's right to submit to it. God is too wise to make a mistake in judgment and he's too good to inflict punishment without cause. Whatever God ordains is right. That's true, that's absolutely true. But man, where is your heart? Where is your grief, your sorrow, and most of all, where is your repentance? You'd think that after hearing this, you would fall to your knees and weep and mourn and repent. David, when he proclaimed judgment, when God proclaimed judgment on David's house because of his sin with Bathsheba, the Lord promised that the son born from that sin will die. And it says that David sought God about the boy. This is after the judgment. And David fasted and and went and spent the night lying on the ground. And this is what David said after God took his son's life. He said, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. He may 
turn around and repent in his judgment. In wrath, Lord, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Eli, plead for mercy. Do whatever you can. Fast, weep, and mourn, and see if the Lord may be gracious to you, but no, nothing. Just stoic resignation. It's sad. It's sad. Well, Samuel has faithfully delivered what has been entrusted to him. The door of the tabernacle has been opened and the word of God has gone forth. In Samuel then, we find the makings of a true and faithful prophet. And this brings us to number four, the confirmation, the confirmation. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's what this chapter is all about. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We began with a famine of the word of God, and we close with the word of the Lord through Samuel coming to all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that is north to south, all Israel. And the Lord didn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. They all came to pass. Everything that he said, all his his prophesying, and why is that? Because they weren't his words. It was the word of the Lord. And when God speaks, when God promises, his word will never fall to the ground. And for those in Christ, you have promises that will never fall to the ground. Let me give you some examples. The promise of eternal life. The promise of no more condemnation. The promise that his grace is sufficient for you in all your weakness. The promise that all things are working together for your good. And the promise that what he began in you, he will perfect it. And the list goes on and on and on. And none of those promises will ever fall to the ground if you're in Christ. And just note that having God's word is not an end in itself. Having God's word is a means to know and to treasure the Lord. That is the end for which we were made The Lord revealed himself by the word of the Lord. Why do we love the Bible? Why do we need the Bible? Because it reveals our God in all his glory, his grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion and kindness, but also his power and his wrath and his justice and his judgments. The Lord wills to demonstrate all of his perfections for our good, for our joy, and for his glory. The Lord has given his words that we may know him. That's what Israel needed and that's what we need. To know him and to fear him and to treasure him. And our God reveals himself by his word. And it's interesting that Yahweh came and stood, verse 10, and Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, verse 21, and revealed himself by his word, And I'm not dogmatic about this, but who who better to reveal the Lord than the word of God made flesh? And the word who was with God and the word who was God, uh, 
John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has revealed him. It seems to be that this may well be our Savior. What's our response? Number one, tremble at his word. Tremble at his word. The Lord says in Isaiah 62, To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. I don't know about you, but this word today, starting it this week, has caused me to tremble. The Lord is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so may we have a reverential fear of sinning against our holy God. That's number one. Number two, treasure his word treasure his word. God's word is a gift to you. In Psalm 19, we read of several benefits of having the word of God. Number one, it restores or refreshes the soul. Do you need that? Do you need that today? It makes wise the simple. I know I need that. It rejoices the heart. Do you struggle to have joy? Here's your answer. Run to his word. And it gives light to the eyes so that we can see clearly. We can know the truth. And if I had 20 more minutes, I could read all of Psalm 119, but I don't. So here's a sampler. And just listen, just listen to how the psalmist treasures the word of God. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart." Is this how you think of God's word? Is his word this precious to you? Oh, may we see how valuable God's word is to us. This word is powerful and sanctifying and it will transform your heart into the likeness of Christ. Why? Because it all points to him. It all points to him. Well, in a time of crisis in Israel, what did God do? He sent his word. And what do we need most, not just in a crisis, but always his word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What a treasure it is to our hearts. It brings us to the highest places of joy and it causes us to tremble. You have revealed yourself by your word. That's why you gave it. Oh, may we learn from this example and be fearful of sinning, fearful of rejecting the only means of salvation. If there are any here who are planning to go another day after hearing of your judgment and and the gospel of Christ, if they're planning to go back to their sin after this, Lord, arrest their hearts. Don't let them go. Draw them to yourself. Open their eyes to see the glory of Christ and save them And Father, for for those who are here by your grace, who are in Christ, may you find us faithful 
as we take heed to your word, both in private devotions and in in the fellowship of the saints and the preaching of your word. Make us willing and eager and ready to hear from you in, in your word and to be transformed in your likeness from one degree of glory to the next after the image of Christ. Your word sanctifies. Let your word have its way in our hearts more and more each day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.